Shashi Tharoor, as you know, is uh, served for 29 years at the United Nations, rising to the post of Under Secretary General. He has also been Minister of State for External Affairs in India and is presently a Congress Member of Parliament. The author of 16 previous books, Tharoor has won numerous literary awards, including a Commonwealth Writers' Prize. His Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India, was a Sunday Times bestseller and was named as a Financial Times Book of the Year. And those of you who are here will have heard him speak about it uh, in Oxford, in fact, indeed, at St. Anthony's. Um, so the, the schedule for the day is as follows. We'll have uh, Dr. Tharoor speak for some 20 minutes to half an hour. We'll then have Dr. Shruti Kapila, uh, a historian at the University of Cambridge, uh, who will be his interlocutor. will speak for about 10, 15 minutes. Uh, and then we'll open up to discussion with the audience, ending promptly at 6, after which, of course, there will be a line for uh, book signings. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Shashi Tharoor. I've, I've published this book, Why I'm a Hindu, um, for all sorts of reasons, but um, uh, partly because these are concerns that I've had for some time. Um, some of you who have read my other books will be aware of the great Indian novel with its sort of obsession with dharma. Uh, you will recall perhaps from my novel Riot, uh, my reflections on the rise of Hindutva uh, during the, the Ramshila Pujan riots that preceded the destruction of the Babri Masjid. Some of you who have read India from Midnight to the Millennium now 20 years ago will know that I spent a couple of pages in it uh, reflecting on my own reactions as <coughs> someone brought up as a Hindu uh, to uh, what was being done in the name of my faith with the destruction of that mosque and so on. So my concerns have been prefigured in at least three of my previous books and implicitly so in other, others of my writing. So in that sense, there's nothing terribly new in my saying what I've said in this book. At the same time, a sort of moral urgency was imposed upon me <coughs> by the fact that um, we have here um, in India in the last four years, a, um, an unleashing of certain sentiments, forces, ideas, and behaviors, which have collectively given us a distorted portrait of Hinduism in ways that many Hindus like me who grew up as, 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 as Hindus do not recognize as Hinduism. And so the, the need to stand up for our faith and to insist that what was being done in its name was not justified by the tenets of the faith. And, and, and the plea to take back the faith, as it were, for those of us who are not acolytes of the Hindutva movement, that is what animates the book's tenor as a whole. So it, it's a book in three parts of actually decreasing length from one part to the next. The first part um, is somewhat presumptuously perhaps called my Hinduism, but it actually isn't intended to be presumptuous. It's intended to be uh, a reflection of, um, of, of my talking about the fact that like most Hindus, each of us has our own personal experience of and knowledge of the faith. So it's a description of Hinduism, uh, the Hinduism that I was born into, the Hinduism that I got from my 
devout parents, the Hinduism that I observed and saw around me, the Hinduism I read about, mainly in English, as I will explain, uh, and the Hinduism that I then um, also learned the precepts of from, from, from the great teachers and Mahatmas of, of my faith. And having done all of that, I then go into a second section called political Hinduism, where I describe initially the Hindutva ideology in its own words, in the words of its own uh, ideologues and thinkers, uh, analyze it subsequently, and then uh, talk about, frankly, its excesses. And then in a final section called Taking Back Hinduism, I make the case for, for uh, reclaiming Hinduism for those of us who understand it differently from the Hindutva movement. So that's what the book is all about. Um, it is, it is uh, well, why, why don't I, instead of trying to summarize it more, why don't I actually read a few pages to all of you um, uh, from the very beginning of the book, just to give you a sense, not just of the subjects I deal with, but the way in which I deal with them and the tone I use. And then we could uh, <coughs> go into it in a little more detail and then get into the dialogue with Shruti. But I've got to take a picture of all of you before I do any of this. This is amazing. Thank you. I am absolutely delighted to see this full hall. And uh, it's nice of you to have come and sat here. So I shall have to share that with, uh, with my friends on social media. Anyway, back to the, the serious issues before us. So this is how the book begins. Why am I a Hindu? The obvious answer to this question is, of course, because I was born one. Most people had little choice about the faith they grew up with. It was selected for them at birth by the accident of geography and their parents' cultural moorings. The overwhelming majority of Hindus in the world were born Hindu. A small handful inspired by marriage, migration or philosophical conviction have adopted the faith, usually by a process of conversion unknown to most Hindus. Unlike that small minority, I was never anything else. I was born a Hindu, grew up as one, and have considered myself one all my life. But what does being a Hindu mean? Many of us began having to interrogate ourselves in the late 1980s, when the world media first began to speak and write of Hindu fundamentalism. This was odd because we knew of Hinduism as a religion without fundamentals. No founder or prophet, no organized church, no compulsory beliefs or rites of worship, no uniform conception of the good life, no single sacred book. My Hinduism was a lived faith. It was a Hinduism of experience and upbringing, a Hinduism of observation and conversation, not one anchored in deep religious study, though of course the two are not mutually exclusive. I knew few mantras, just a few snatches of a couple of hymns and practically no Sanskrit. My knowledge of Hindu sacred texts and philosophies came entirely from reading them in English. Translation. When I went to a temple, I pay, prayed in an odd combination of English, Sanskrit, and my mother tongue, Malayalam, instinctively convinced that an omniscient god would, of course, be multilingual. <laughs> As a student of history, I've always been curious about ancient Indian traditions and beliefs, and then I talk a little bit about the, the readings I've done into all of this. Then I say the first challenge, of course, was definitional. The term Hindu itself denotes something less and more than a set of theological beliefs. In many languages, French and Persian amongst them, 
the word for Indian is Hindu. Originally, Hindu simply meant the people beyond the river Sindhu or the Indus. But the Indus is now in Islamic Pakistan. And to make matters worse, the word Hindu did not exist in any Indian language till its use by foreigners gave Indians a term for self-definition. Hindus, in other words, called themselves by a label that they didn't invent themselves in any of their own languages, but adopted cheerfully when others began to refer, them, refer to them by that word. Of course, many prefer a d different term altogether, Sanatan Dharm, or the eternal faith, but I discussed that separately. Hinduism is thus the name that foreigners first applied to what they saw as the indigenous religion of India. It embraces an eclectic range of doctrines and practices, from pantheism to agnosticism, and from faith and reincarnation to belief in the caste system. But none of these constitutes an obligatory credo for a Hindu. There are none. We have no compulsory dogmas. This is, of course, rather unusual. A Catholic is a Catholic because he believes Jesus was the Son of God, who sacrificed himself for man. A Catholic believes in the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth, offers confession, genuflects in church, and is guided by the Pope and a celibate priesthood. A Muslim must believe that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. A Jew cherishes his Torah or Pentateuch and, that, and, and his Talmud. A Parsi worships at a fire temple. A Sikh honors the teachings of the Guru Granth Sahib above all else. There is no Hindu equivalent to any of these beliefs. There are simply no binding requirements to being a Hindu, not even a belief in God. I grew up in a Hindu household. Our home always had a prayer room where paintings and portraits of assorted divinities jostled for shelf and wall space with fading photographs of departed ancestors, all stained by ash scattered from the incense burned daily by my devout parents. I've written before of how my earliest experiences of piety came from watching my father at prayer. Every morning after his bath, my father would stand in front of the prayer room, wrapped in his towel, his wet hair still uncombed, and chant his Sanskrit mantras. But he never obliged me to join him. He exemplified the Hindu idea that religion is an intensely personal matter, that prayer is between you and whatever image of your maker you choose to worship. In the Hindu way, I was to find my own truth. I think I have. I am a believer, despite a brief period of schoolboy atheism, of the kind that comes with the discovery of rationality and goes with an acknowledgement of its limitations. And I'm happy to describe myself as a believing Hindu, not just because it's the faith into which I was born, but for a string of reasons, though faith requires no reason. And I talk about the cultural uh, reasoning, as it were, uh, that knits Hindus together to, to, the, to, to, the, to India. <coughs> Next paragraph. But another reason for my belief in Hinduism is, for lack of a better phrase, its intellectual fit. I'm more comfortable with the tenets of Hinduism than I would be with those of the other faiths of which I know. I have long thought of myself as a liberal, not merely in the political sense of the term or even in relation to principles of economics, but as an attitude to life. To accept people as one finds them, to allow them to be and to become what they choose, and to encourage them to do whatever they like, as long as it does not harm others, is my natural instinct. Rigid and censorious beliefs have never appealed to my temperament. 
in matters of religion too, I found my liberal instincts reinforced by the faith in which I was brought up. Hinduism is, in many ways, predicated on the idea that the eternal wisdom of the ages and of divinity cannot be confined to a single sacred book. We have many, and we can delve into each to find our own truth or truths. As a Hindu, I can claim adherence to a religion without an established church or priestly papacy, a religion whose rituals and customs I am free to reject, a religion that does not oblige me to demonstrate my faith by any visible sign, by subsuming my identity in any collectivity, not even by a specific day or time or frequency of worship. There is no Hindu Pope, no Hindu Vatican, no Hindu Catechism, not even a Hindu Sunday. As a Hindu, I follow a faith that offers a veritable smorgasbord of options to the worshipper of divinities to adore and to pray to, of rituals to observe or not, of customs and practices to honor or not, of fasts to keep or not. As a Hindu, I subscribe to a creed that is free of the restrictive dogmas of holy writ, one that refuses to be shackled to the limitations of a single volume of holy revelation. At the same time, as a Hindu, I appreciate the fact that Hinduism professes no false certitudes. Its capacity to express wonder at creation and simultaneously skepticism about the omniscience of the creator are unique to Hinduism. Both are captured beautifully in this verse from the 3,500-year-old Rig Veda, the Nasadiya Sukta or Creation Hymn. And I have uh, several verses of the Creation Hymn in the book, but I'll just read the last one. Who knows whence this creation had its origin? He, whether he fashioned it or whether he did not, he who surveys it all from the highest heaven, he knows. Or maybe even he does not know. Maybe even he does not know. I love a faith that raises such a fundamental question about no less a supreme being than the creator of the universe. Maybe he does not know indeed. Who are we mere mortals to claim a knowledge of which even he cannot be certain. And while I am paradoxically listing my reasons for a faith beyond reason, let me cite the fundamental point. Above all, as a Hindu, I belong to the only major religion in the world that does not claim to be the only true religion. I find it immensely congenial to be able to face my fellow human beings of other faiths without being burdened by the conviction that I am embarked upon a true path that they have somehow missed. This dogma lies at the core of the Semitic faiths, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. The Bible contains the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, declares the Quran, denying unbelievers all possibility of redemption, let alone of salvation or paradise. Hinduism asserts that all ways of belief are equally valid. And Hindus readily venerate the saints and the sacred objects of other faiths. I'm proud that I can honor the sanctity of other faiths without feeling that I am betraying my own. So from this I go on, I'll stop the reading part here and just say a few more things about what I've tried to explain about Hinduism and then get into a dialogue with, with Shruti Kapila and then with all of you. I think the first thing to be said is that, is that when I lay out this... this um, uh, taxonomy of Hinduism, as it were, early on in the book, it is to point out that essentially uh, the Hindu seers had a very 
interesting and I would say rather sophisticated idea uh, of um, their, their theological quest. Um, for example, I mean, the very fact that <coughs> there is this constant questioning, this constant incertitude, this constant willingness to explore, to doubt, to challenge uh, is, is central uh, to the philosophical underpinnings of the faith. When you look at Hinduism as a religion that has sacred texts, you see a multiplicity of texts, not all of which agree with each other. And so what's striking is it's like this vast library uh, in which no book ever goes out of print, but which you can draw from and, and annotate uh, or challenge the previous annotations of and pick and choose to construct and fashion your own faith and your own manner of exploring the faith. It's very interesting, for example, this idea of God. Hindu philosophy early on saw God in the form of Brahman, a sort of force that suffuses the entire cosmos. And uh, all of us, all living creatures, possess an Atman, a soul, which is actually one and the same soul that is manifest in all, our, uh, in all of us. And the ultimate yearning of the soul is to merge with the Brahman. So the Atman seeks to merge with the Brahman and become one with the cosmos. An interesting philosophical idea, uh, further compounded by the observation that in, in most Western faiths, most other faiths, the body has a soul, whereas in Hinduism, the soul has a body. The soul is permanent, happens to be in temporary possession of your body. And when it decides it's had enough of it, it discards this body and moves on to the next one. And this, this is a, a rather intriguing idea. But it's further enhanced by the notion that as um, you proceed in this quest, uh, you are embarking upon various ways of trying to realize this connection of the soul to the absolute. Uh, Hinduism charts out roughly four ways in which you can pursue this. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, the great late 19th century preacher, <coughs> wrote a book in which he spelt them out as four yogas. Uh, the best known, the most commonly practiced is bhakti yoga, the act of worship, of going to temples and prayers. Uh, but then you have uh, jnana yoga uh, through knowledge, through reading of texts, through understanding of philosophies. And then you've got karma yoga, which is the yoga of service, of action. Uh, whether you're a, a sannyasi, a, a preacher going out and administering to the poor, whether you are a social worker, maybe even a public servant, uh, a politician who, who might dare say, who actually goes out and tries and makes a difference to people. Those are all forms of karma yoga. And then finally, you've got <coughs> Raja yoga, which is an interior <coughs> pursuit. That is through meditation, reflection, interior examination, you seek to find your connection to God. Uh, I've joked somewhere in the book that, you know, whereas in people in other religions look to the heavens to find God, the Hindu looks within himself. Because God is in here, you've got to search and dive down deep to find God. And so um, all of these ways are equally valid ways of pursuing this. Uh, for most ordinary people, of course, bhakti or worship is the simplest and the, the one that's most accessible to them. A highly realized soul like Swami Vivekananda himself could practice all four. Most of us might not get past the early hurdles of, 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 of 102. But the point is that this quest for the absolute will be pursued and can be pursued in all of these ways. 
one of the reasons you need to look within is because, of course, the original concept of God in Hinduism was of a God who is shapeless, formless, nameless, unimaginable, the Nirguna Brahman, a God without qualities. But after a few centuries of advancing this theory, the sages began to realize that um, for most ordinary people, that wasn't good enough. They actually needed to visualize something they could worship. Uh, in the Vedic years, a lot of people worshiping nature, fire, trees, rivers, and so on. So they said, no, we better make it a bit easier. In fact, the advent of the Greeks in, in the 4th century BC with their idea of stone temples where deities are worshipped appealed to the Hindus as well. And they began doing that too. And then they said, um, since no one really knows what God looks like or no one knows how to imagine God, which may be male, female, neuter, uh, an idea, a principle, a force, a wind, no one knows, right? So let us free people to imagine God in whichever way they want. So there are 333 million names of God and 333 million ways you can imagine God. And all of those are equally acceptable because no one knows which is more authentic than, than the other. So if you want to imagine God as a pot-bellied fellow with an elephant trunk, an elephant head, that's fine. If you want to imagine God as an eight-armed woman riding a tiger, that's fine too. And by the same logic, if you insist on imagining God as a bleeding man suffering on a cross, that's equally acceptable to the Hindu. These are all valid ways of imagining that which in any case no one can say, I know what God looks like in this ain't it, because no one can say that. So this recognition that the limitations of the human imagination oblige us to be able, as it were, to conceive God in our, in our own ways, this uh, is also built into the tenets of Hinduism. Somebody asked me once in one of the discussions <coughs> I was having on this book, but if Hinduism permits literally anything and everything, then anyone can be a Hindu. And the literal answer is yes, provided. Provided you don't insist that your way is the only way. That's about the only proscription that Hinduism has, because Hinduism says essentially that um, we, can, we can imagine God as we wish, we can worship, worship God as we like. Uh, Swami Vivekananda memorably used the metaphor he said that there are all, just as there are many rivers flowing straight or crooked in different parts in different directions and ending up at the same sea, so also all different ways of reaching out to God end up in the same place. And so they're all equally valid. That was the, the core Hindu idea. So as long as you say, uh, my way is good and your way is good, we are happy when Buddha uh, arose as a reformer against Hinduism. The Hindus quite promptly made him an incarnation of Vishnu. You know, we're very happy to have you come and come and join the club. Uh, the same, the same with Jainism, and and even later with Sikhism, as recently as a few centuries ago, in the 1500s, many Hindus simply saw the Sikh faith as another acceptable variant of of Hinduism. This is this agglomerate of inclusiveness, and given half a choice. I'm sure Jesus Christ will be absorbed as an incarnation uh, of, of Vishnu as well. But the Christians, of course, say that you have to go through Christ and that the Hindus have a problem with. Vivekananda, I keep citing him and I've referred to him a lot in the book, uh, actually spoke about Hinduism very powerfully in a series of addresses at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. That he was actually invited to come and speak for five minutes. And he did so well and got such a standing ovation, they kept asking him to speak some more. So he ended up delivering five or six speeches over the next couple of days rather than just one. And they're, they're all available as, as Vivekananda's addresses to Chicago. 
But uh, one of them, he said something which I read as a teenager and has stuck with me ever since for its profundity. And he said, I'm proud to speak of a, of a religion which has taught the world not just tolerance but acceptance. And the more I thought about it, the more impressed I was by the idea contained in that sentence. Because I too went to a school, as perhaps most of you have, where you're taught that tolerance is a virtue. Right? A tolerant king is a good king because he tolerates everybody else, right? And tolerant regimes are positive things and so on. But when you really think about it, tolerance is a terribly patronizing idea. Because what does tolerance say? Tolerance says, I have the truth. You are in error, but I will magnanimously indulge you in your right to be wrong. <laughs> but acceptance, as Vivekanand said, is actually much more than that. Acceptance says, I believe I have the truth. You believe you have the truth. I will respect your truth. Please respect my truth. And this, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this to my mind is what exalts Hinduism as a faith I'm comfortable to be an adherent of. And it's also an extremely good prescription for a multi-religious, multi-ethnic environment such as the one I live in in India. Now I segue from all of this and indeed in the book I also have some of my own interrogations as a child and growing up as a Hindu, challenging some of the tenets of the faith from reincarnation to the caste system. And I'm very happy to address any of these with you all uh, if you're in during the Q&A, but in order not to go on too long. Uh, I then moved to uh, the second section, the Hindutva ideology, uh, where essentially I, I quote in uh, extenso, well, not quite, but very extensively, uh, the ideas of the three principal ideologues of Hindutva. Uh, Vidi Savarkar, who came up with the term in the 1920s, um, M.S. Golwalkar, who as the longest serving head of the RSS, the, uh, the organization established in the 1920s that became the torchbearer of the Hindutva movement, um, and Deen Deyal Upadhyay, who was the ideologue and head eventually of the Bharatiya Jansang, the forerunner of today's Bharatiya Janta Party, which of course is in power in New Delhi. And um, I quote the views of these thinkers. <laughs> I point out that Savarkar wrote his concept in the 1920s, that he himself openly admitted he was not a terribly religious person, and he was, much, he was rather unconcerned with Hinduism as religious ideas. Uh, he was writing about uh, what others in Europe, for example, at exactly the same time were writing. Race pride, the kinds of uh, intellectual efforts by supporters of Mussolini and Hitler that you can now find in the archives in the 1920s, it's the same animating spirit that lies behind the notion of Hindutva in, in Savarkar's writing. In fact, there's even a European Nazi who makes her way over to India uh, and, and becomes a, a born-again Hindu chauvinist. Uh, I'm sorry? I beg your pardon? No, it's all right. Oh, okay. Uh, we're running out of time. I'm sorry, gosh, we are. <laughs> um, uh, there's even a European, uh, European uh, uh, Nazi who makes a way to India and becomes a born-again proponent of, of Hindutva. Savitri Devi and Savarka writes a forward uh, to her book, which I've quoted. Uh, then you've got Golbak and Pinganaj, you've got Upadhyay and his thinking, uh, all of which I've tried to be very fair to in summarizing and presenting. Mine is not, uh, I'm not just poking uh, holes in their arguments. I laid out for those who are interested in knowing what they believe. And then, of course, I challenge 
the bigotry and narrow-mindedness. And I would have said more, but given the time factor, we'll save it for your Q&A if you're interested in knowing more. And finally, I argue that we should take, we should take uh, this liberal, inclusive, uh, all-embracing Hinduism that I've spent the last half an hour describing to you, uh, we should take that back from the, the bigoted um, advocates of a narrow-minded perversion of, of, of Hinduism who have reduced the soaring majesty of the Upanishads and the Vedas and the great Hindu texts into something much more like the team identity of the British football hooligan. Uh, that is what's going on now with people attacking uh, people of other faiths. Uh, uh, on, on, you know, my team is better than your team and I'll bash you on the head if you don't agree. Uh, so that uh, with the result that you've actually had human beings being assaulted and even murdered in the name of cow protection. You've had mob lynchings, you've had floggings of Dalits for doing their own work in peace, in this case, skinning a dead cow. You've had various uh, manifestations of, of gruesome intolerance and misbehavior, which, as I said, have nothing to do with the Hinduism that I have described to you and which is anchored very much in, in the texts and the teachings of the faith. And, and then I end on a slightly uh, more sort of upbeat note, if you like, and I'll read one paragraph. It's not the very end of the book, but towards it, <coughs> which argues the positive case for Hinduism away from the, the, the image it has acquired under Hindutva. In the 21st century, Hinduism has many of the attributes of a universal religion, a religion that is personal and individualistic, privileges the individual and does not subordinate one to a collectivity, a religion that grants and respects complete freedom to the believer to find his or her own answers to the true meaning of life, a religion that offers a wide range of choice in religious practice, even in regard to the nature and form of the formless God, a religion that places great emphasis on one's mind and values one's capacity for reflection, intellectual inquiry and self-study, a religion that distances itself from dogma and holy writ, that is minimally prescriptive, there are no Hindu fatwas, and yet offers an abundance of options, spiritual and philosophical texts, and social and cultural practices to choose from. In a world where resistance to authority is growing, Hinduism imposes no authorities. In a world of networked individuals of our worldwide web, Hinduism proposes no institutional hierarchies. In a world of open source information sharing, Hinduism accepts all paths as equally valid. In a world of rapid transformations and accelerating change, Hinduism is adaptable and flexible, which is why it has survived for nearly 4,000 years. So that's sort of my case for Hinduism. And I'd be very happy to answer questions on all the things I've left out. Okay, um, thanks very much, Shashi. Um, you've obviously become a global public intellectual, and those of you, uh, quite apart from anything else, but those of you uh, who do history are particularly grateful for your last big intervention on the British Empire. So I wanted to record that before I uh, take on some of the things you've said today. I should start by saying that as a practicing Hindu, actually, I did not grow up as a Hindu. Uh, I came from a godless family uh, in Chandigarh, which is Nehru's, you know, dream city, uh, you know, post-colonial dreamscape. Uh, we didn't have a prayer room, none of that. 
So in a way, I have a slightly different trajectory uh, from you in, 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 in that sense. And I want to actually return to the question of why reclaiming Hinduism might be a radical act, but uh, might, not, might not be the Nehruvian way that you have described us, uh, to, uh, given to us, but it might be Gandhi. So let me just uh, uh, say something, a, f a few more things about your uh, your work, because I was I was struck by uh, I, I do political thought, intellectual history, but one of the things about Nehru's uh, cr uh, vision uh, on India, which actually produced in a way your book is uh, also channeling uh, Nehru. You know, you you have uh, you've been a Nehruvian all your life, was that actually he could do amount a kind of new civilizational project for India, which is beyond the state. It wasn't simply about the nation state, but it was actually about you know, under the master category of science and rationality. And I think one of the problems uh, today is that there is no other master category at the moment. Uh, and, and I think we need to sort of think a little bit about that. But also, I think Gandhi, uh, as you know, unlike Nehru, uh, very strongly believed uh, that religion uh, without, uh, or rather politics without religion was a body without a soul. And this was, uh, and his, his actually, um, in a way, you know, you can say precisely because of the reasons you've said, why someone like Nehru would not have a pro problem with Gandhi incorporating his critique as, okay, you know, I'll be tolerant. But actually Gandhi's real en enmity was uh, with the people who killed him ultimately, uh, uh, which is people in power today, uh, are precisely the people of Hindutva for whom you uh, rightly point out, uh, Hinduism is neither here nor there. Savarkar uh, was, uh, was a very well-known atheist. Uh, he actually argues even more forcefully that the obstacle for the rise of Hindutva is actually Hinduism itself. That, 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 that precisely for the kind of things you uh, uh, are arguing for. But I think it gets, it's, so in a way, it's a very complicated story in, in, in than simply one of toleration or what you're calling about uh, people uh, being brought in, whether it's Christ or, uh, or you know, anthropologists call this form of bringing people in as a kind of form of aggressive incorporation. And it's, it's, not, it's not as nice as actually <laughs> you make it out to be. The other thing was, and I think because time is running short, I'll be pretty telegraphic. Uh, we t tend to think about, and even you, in a way, uh, signposted the Hindu-Muslim question, the Babri Masjid uh, turning point. But if you read Savarkar carefully, and I urge everyone to, to, to read Savarkar carefully, uh, the enmity that Hindutva identified was not actually Islam. Uh, it is actually Buddhism. And it said that the reason, uh, the, the, the biggest, pro biggest problem that has faced, uh, as it were, uh, the last more than two millennia of India was, uh, was actually uh, was Buddhism, because Buddhism, in a way, militated against uh, a new form of statecraft and, 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 and so on, and the belief in nonviolence uh, particularly. And I, think, um, and I think that story stays with India today, uh, given, uh, given the return of Dalit politics as also a form of Buddhist politics. And, and, and of course, it's all very well to say uh, that uh, you know, Hinduism has fewer problems with people who are not co-religionists. But I think it, is, it would be fair to say that it is the only religion uh, which excludes its own. Uh, you know, so if you're a Christian or if you're a Muslim, uh, there is a kind of uh, radical equality uh, to being uh, to, to being Christian or Muslim as co-religious. But I don't know of any faith which actually, uh, as its own uh, precept, uh, makes uh, equality and justice 
uh, actually a random uh, act of birth. And, and of course, uh, I am talking about caste, but, uh, but also therefore knowledge, because what is caste? It is not simply about going to temples. It is actually about who gets to read, who gets to write, who gets to have access to justice and the like, because uh, as Ambedkar uh, pointed out, uh, the issue is uh, that, that the lower castes were disarmed uh, they were they were they, they were they were not given rights to arms and you would know since you know your British history uh, that uh, there was there was no capital capital punishment against Brahmins allowed even in even under uh, British imperial rule so in a way uh, I think you know the Savarkar question is the key question whether the, whether however how it how much ever you want to kind of uh, say that you want to be fair to them because of course as I said Hinduism is not Hindutva and Gandhi Savarkar differences were all about claiming Hinduism back for Indians uh, at a time uh, at a time actually he, you know when his particularly when Gandhi's differences were uh, becoming very overt with Nehru. I mean, of course, it saddens me deeply today that of course uh, Ambedkar, I mean, is a great figure, a big hero, but I don't see why we have to kind of as it were kill Gandhi to like Ambedkar. And I think there's a big, there's a very big problem going on in Indian politics around foundational figures because I think to just dismiss Gandhi as a casteist is is deeply problematic because of course uh, Gandhi has very different answers to the caste problem. He's not he's not advocating caste. He's basically saying the law cannot solve it, and 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 the law will not get us very far. Uh, and that is really the fundamental difference. So I think, so my question today to, to you is really because you have talked of, you are going to speak about uh, Hindu nationalism as it stands today, is that without that absence of say science that Nehru had, uh, what is the master category uh, that you are going to deploy as a politician, as a political figure, uh, to in a way counter the story of Hindutva, if you want to do it, that is, but also, uh, today, your reclaiming of Hinduism in this liberal vein, uh, which you have described at length today, is it a politics of courage, or is it a politics of confrontation with Hindutva, or is it a politics of compromise? Thank you. Thank you, Shruti, for those very insightful comments delivered with your usual passion and eloquence. <coughs> Uh, just briefly on, on, on your earlier observations. You're right that Savaka intellectually saw Buddhism as having disarmed uh, Hinduism with its emphasis on ahimsa and so on, though in fact he was about a thousand years out of date because Adi Shankara had already both absorbed some of the better ideas of Buddhism and defeated it in debate, as it were, to revive Hinduism um, a thousand years previously. But the thing about Savaka's writing is that the bigotry that was openly expressed, particularly about Muslims, um, actually became the cutting edge of the Hindutva movement from then onwards. He talks, for example, about a riot in which he participated as a teenager in, in quite chilling terms. I, I've not quoted that in the book, but I think you know what I'm referring to. And the thing is that <coughs> by the time you get to Golwalkar, who's building on Savaka's theory, it's quite blood curdling. I mean, he talks about uh, how it would be admirable to do to the Muslims of India what the Nazis had done to the Jews, and that sort of that sort of thing is quite absolutely horrifying. 
Dindayal Upadhyaya then comes into the business of becoming the leader of a political party, actually seeking votes and seeking to come to power. Uh, and he is therefore a little more moderate. He doesn't depart from the intellectual preconceptions of the other two. In fact, uh, he admires them both. But he, he talks about the fact that it's, it doesn't make sense to talk in terms of getting rid of India's Muslims. It's more important to assimilate them by making them more Hindu, which sort of, again, uh, defeats the entire purpose, as it were, uh, of, of others having their own fates and being accepted for who they are, which is what Vivekananda or Mahatma Gandhi would have celebrated. When Mahatma Gandhi put into his bhajans lines like Raghupati Raghava Raja Ram, Ishwara Allah Tero Naam, he was saying essentially that Ishwar and Allah are both equal, which is the philosophy of acceptance we've been talking about. Whereas for the others, they really wanted there the... Is no there, is no, there is no equality of acceptance at all, quite right. Now, you ended with a, with a provocative question that I should respond to. Um, no, I think in our politics, it makes absolutely no sense to compromise. Uh, I've, I've, I sort of tear my hair in despair when I'm accused by writing this book of participating in an exercise of soft Hindutva. Because for me, Hindutva is not Hinduism. It's a political ideology starting off from a different set of premises and articulating itself in a way that's profoundly <coughs> un-Hindu and I would even argue anti-Hindu. If you understand Hinduism in the way in which I understand it, there is nothing in common with the Hindutva uh, ideology. And therefore my argument would be that what we need to do is to neutralize the insidious political appeal that says because we are advocates of Hindutva, we are the only ones speaking for the interests of Hindus. Um, it suits them to reduce the argument to one between true Hindus and godless secularists. I thought it would be actually helpful to move the argument within Hinduism and to say that actually there is an argument going on between a distorted view of Hinduism and a view of Hinduism that I can robustly defend that says this kind of Hinduism embraces and accepts people of other faiths and, and lives together with them. Yours is not actually Hinduism. Now the purpose is not to win theological arguments. The purpose is to neutralize that argument. It's to neutralize their appeal to go out and say all Hindus should vote for us because we are looking after your interests. We speak for you. <coughs> By demonstrating to most Hindus that sorry, no, you don't actually speak for us. Uh, so now that we've got that put aside, can we focus on development? Can we focus on the failures of your economic management, the misgovernance you subjected us to for the last four years, etc.? So the political argument, in my view, is to neutralize the one in order to debate on completely unrelated fields, rather than to set ourselves up as a sort of compromising version. Because obviously nobody, I'm reminded of a, of, of a famous line from um, American politics in the 1940s when Harry Truman said that if you're going to try and be Republican light, the people will vote for the real Republican at any time. You must carve out a distinctive set of views and stand up for them. And I, in my own way, have been trying to do that within the Congress party and in the public sphere.